Stein. Join me as I do interviews with leaders in the field of artificial intelligence from across the world. We speak about the business relevance of artificial intelligence, and we also speak about the future. Is it to be feared or to be embraced? Please subscribe at my website for updates on future interviews. Hello, artificial intelligence enthusiasts. A year or so ago, I read a book that would revolutionize the way I think about AI, the singularity and related topics. The book introduced me to thinkers and ideas that I never knew about and launched me on a quest for reading, learning and discovery that would forever change the way I think about the future. The book was Conversations with the Future, 21 Visions for the 21st Century, written by Nikola Danilov. I never dreamed that one day I would have the honor of speaking with the author of that book. So today's episode with Nikola is all about his work, how he came about writing his book, his famous website and podcast. We touched on important subjects such as the technological singularity, the Turing test, the current limitations of artificial intelligence, on whether machines could exhibit consciousness, and on the future of humanity, given this technological explosion. This is a talk you do not want to miss. Welcome. I invite you to listen in on our conversation. Nicola, thank you so much for joining us all the way from Toronto. I'm very pleased and honored to have you on the show today. I read your book a few months back and um, I realized it's one of those books that I need to reread. I highlighted so much of it on, on my Kindle. Um, so let's start off with, with maybe with the book and then get into to the work you're doing and think that's maybe intertwined. But it's all about singularity. There's a singularity website, the, uh, you know, the web block, um, the, the podcasts. I think the word singularity is most likely confusing or potentially even unknown to some people. So um, let's maybe talk about the singularity and also how it led you to your book and, and what you discovered because you spoke to some amazing people as part of creating that book. Well, uh, okay, so my book is called uh, Conversations with the Future, 21 Visions for the 21st Century. And as you said, uh, it was uh, structured at least originally around the concept of the technological singularity. Now, the technological singularity as a concept uh, has been uh, coined by the science fiction writer and uh, professor of mathematics, uh, Werner Vinge in the early 1980s and there's a, a number of different schools that came to be associated with different kind of flavors of the meaning thereafter. So uh, the original uh, Werner Vingian meaning is sort of like a, a, a hybrid flavor between uh, an event horizon and an intelligence explosion. So by intelligence explosion, he means a moment uh, in the future where um, things, uh, where uh, intelligence, uh, machine intelligence will basically explode all around us in every 
kind of machine tool uh, utility software computer houses cars airplanes everywhere you can imagine everything will be smart and we can already see that happening of course everything around us is going smart we have smartphones smart watches smart cars smart software smart accounting smart homes everything is going smart so that's kind of the beginning of the intelligence explosion until we get to a point where it's we're uh, behind that intelligence in terms of our ability to keep up with or to even process it and that leads us to the second flavor which is kind of the event horizon and the event horizon is borrowed from physics and mathematics where we have the concept of the black hole which is a singularity and that's where the term is most uh, borrowed from and, and uh, the idea there is that once you reach the event horizon of a black hole, there is no light escaping. So you cannot see anything there. You cannot see anything, which is why it's called a black hole, right? And so uh, when you take that concept and apply it to our technological future, the idea is that there may come a point in our future uh, when we are unable to see what happens thereafter simply because things would be going at an exponential pace of development at an accelerating exponential pace of development faster and faster and you know in the past we were kind of able to predict the future because for hundreds and thousands of years sometimes life remained more or less constant you know uh, in the uh, 2,000 years ago or a thousand years ago or maybe even some couple hundred years ago in most places and even some places today but that's getting increasingly rare children used to live exactly the same way as their fathers as their grandfathers as their great-great-grandfathers in exactly the same village usually doing the same occupation and doing the same things and so life was predictable in that way that basically you would end up living in the same place doing the same thing and things are going to be more or less constant well today with that kind of accelerating change that we're all witnessing I believe we are coming to a moment where things are changing so fast and so profoundly that at certain point in time you cannot beyond a certain point in, in time in the future which is that singularity we cannot see what happens because the biggest feature of that is that humanity will likely stop being the smartest species on the planet may become the second smartest species on the planet after the AI after machine intelligence and then we don't know simply we don't know what happens next I mean we can pre uh, we can try and speculate about it uh, but it's not scientifically uh, uh, solid uh, it, it's 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 at best a guesstimate so we really don't know what happens thereafter and that's why it's called a, a singularity and another way of putting all of this perhaps together and wrapping up this long answer would be to say that the technological singularity is simply the moment at which machines first equal and then very quickly eventually surpass human intelligence I think the question that a lot of people ask and debate about is when is that going to happen? I don't know if we know, but what would your opinion be on that? So, you see, there is a hierarchy of questions, usually, uh, at least in my opinion. And 
when is rarely at the top of the hierarchy of the questions. Usually the better question is why. Uh, because the important questions are usually why. When is, is like a secondary, if not a, a, a third sort of level of a question. You see, I'm a philo philosopher, so I care about the big trends that humanity is experiencing today and our civilization is, is struggling with or being challenged by in general. Uh, and so while I would love to witness the singularity if it were to happen and uh, benefit personally from things such as, for example, life extension technology, the reality is nobody cares about me and whether I will be fortunate enough to be there to benefit from that. So that's a, a personal and selfish question. The more important question is, so what? Why? What happens after that's a possibility, right? So that's where I believe we should focus. Now, having said that, you know, there's been a number of speculations on the topic and Ray Kurzweil has given a, 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 a timeline which starts uh, in the mid-2020s, uh, around 2028, when he says that computers will uh, pass the Turing test and then eventually around 2045 uh, machines would uh, equal and then surpass human intelligence. Now I personally and, and you know there's been a lot of speculation about whether he's optimistic uh, uh, you know whether uh, more recently some people have said well things are moving so fast that he's actually kind of a little bit pessimistic because chances are it's going to happen even before that um, I personally actually think that uh, uh, it actually could take longer uh, because we still have a number of issues um, related to the creation of artificial intelligence, which are major issues that we need to overcome. And I don't think that we really have made much progress on some of those major issues towards artificial general intelligence, despite the, the progress in machine learning, uh, neural networks and things like that, which have done some incredible things. Uh, with respect to artificial general intelligence, you can argue whether we have made much progress. Um, and even the creators of, of um, you know, uh, DeepMind, uh, Demis Hassabis, uh, who created AlphaGo and AlphaZero and a number of other amazing software, has uh, recently said that actually uh, we have not uh, made uh, and, and by the way, AlphaGo was at least a decade of, ahead of its time uh, because experts were saying that first uh, a machine would likely never be able to beat a human in Go because there are more um, um, stars in more particles in the universe. Uh, I mean, there's more moves, more potential moves in the game of Go than there are particles actually in the universe. Uh, so a machine with a so-called brute force algorithm, which is the way Deep Blue defeated the world reigning champion Gary Kasparov back in 1997, uh, you know, they're saying with this kind of algorithm, you know, we can never outcalculate a human. Uh, and yet the reality was that this happened at least uh, in the early teens of, of the 21st century. Uh, and um, even the most uh, optimistic experts were saying that we need over 10 years to get there. So despite of that incredible accomplishment, Demis Hassabis went on to say that, well, with respect to artificial general intelligence, we actually haven't made that much progress. And so 
the timeline is very hard to to guess. Uh, I, I, I would say that I think uh, we are likely going to be slower than what Ray Kurzweil thinks, at least uh, with respect to to artificial general intelligence. Um, and But that also depends on how you define it, which ones of the flavor you favor, uh, and how you define the Turing test. Uh, because, you know, uh, if you have a relatively um, um, uh, straightforward or old-fashioned classical Turing test, then maybe that could happen. But the question is, is that really a sufficient sign that the machine has actually equaled human intelligence? Or is that basically a machine tricking us to believe that it has, while in reality it is not? Mm. Right? So there's the, all those details which really matter. And so the definitions, the bars, the benchmarks on the way to the Turing test and to the singularity would all make a difference as per when you believe we might or we will get there and whether we have actually gotten there if you try to measure it at that time. You referred to some stumbling blocks on the way to AGI. Would you maybe clarify what some of those are? Well, so we know that the things that are very easy for humans are very hard uh, for machines and the things that are very uh, hard for humans are very easy for machines. Uh, so for example, uh, machines have been better than humans in arithmetic for at least 50 or 60, 70 years since the invention of calculators. So mm -hmm. as far as brute force calculations go, it's been a fact for over half a century that we can never uh, do it as fast and as efficiently as machines. That's ju just a fact. Uh, now, uh, there are other things though that, that machines still struggle with tremendously. So let me just give you a couple of examples. One from, um, I interviewed, you know, I was very fortunate to do perhaps one of the last, if not the very last interviews with Professor Marvin Minsky before he passed away. And he said two things which kind of blew my mind. So first he said is that he didn't believe that we've made any progress whatsoever with respect to artificial general intelligence. Second, and he absolutely denied that uh, Deep Blue or Watson uh, or AlphaGo were a sign that we're making any progress with respect to artificial general intelligence. Uh, secondly, he said that he didn't even know of any people working in the field of artificial general intelligence according to him today, uh, because most, even though we have, you know, tens of thousands, 10,000, maybe tens of thousands of, you know, people working in the field right now, they're all working in what, what he would refer to narrow artificial intelligence. So when you're talking about, you know, um, uh, Google Translate, uh, or, or, you know, self-driving cars or any of that stuff. That's not artificial general intelligence. That's a very specific application, you know, AlphaGo or chess playing mm -hmm. or other software uh, or even radiology, you know, uh, medical diagnosis. Those are very specific tasks, very limited tasks to a very specific domain. There's been tons of progress made in those specific domains, but that's narrow. That's not general. And so he told me, uh, for example, a machine still doesn't know how to, uh, doesn't know that you can pull with a string, but you can't push with it. 
you know and and a machine is still has uh, str uh, struggles to uh, to walk and do uh, basic stuff that you know a three or four year old uh, can do very quickly and instantaneously and to 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 teach a machine to be able to do something uh, let's say simple things like recognizing the difference between a cat and a dog and a rabbit you need to give it like three billion examples right <clears throat> whereas a child can see two cats and then for the rest of its life it would know what's a, that a cat is a cat that a dog is a dog and that a rabbit is a rabbit you know so we as humans have this kind of intelligence that we can learn from experience from very few examples and somehow extract the general principle to recognize objects which machines uh, and understand those objects which which machines completely lack today and even there's a lot of experts like for example Gary Marcus and others who have raised issues with with uh, the whole uh, claim that machines actually learn anything because they don't really learn they they just kind of calculate and produce certain outcomes but they they haven't really learned so for example if you take AlphaGo AlphaGo learned to play Tetris uh, and that ping pong or pong game uh, in like very short period of time and it destroyed all human records right incredible it figured out new strategies and how to beat the game incredible so you would say well clearly it learned to play the game but if you move the 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 bar with which it hits the ball just one pixel up or down the machine is totally screwed up it cannot do that again right whereas a human for a human that makes no difference if you're good at pong whether it's a little up or a little down you can play just as good you know, obviously the machine will be better than you at that particular level, but if you move it a little, mm. one little uh, change, uh, and that's why the problem with machines is that, that they learn in what's called a closed system. Everything in that system is a simulation, and it's a closed simulation. So within that kind of tightly controlled closed system, a machine can learn certain things, through repetition of billions upon billions of times and then it can outperform a human the problem is the real world around us is not a closed system it is an open system where you have almost infinitely many variables coming in all together and this is where our generalized intelligence is able to extract certain kind of general principles just like seeing two cats and then two billion cats are no problem for us to recognize making a left turn in the middle of the desert you know uh, on a road that you've never driven before no problem for us if you have a self-driving car so-called self-driving car they can only drive on a road that they've driven before no. they can only drive in a situation they can recognize before within their algorithms if you put them in the middle of the desert uh, uh, or in the middle of like the jungle or in the middle of uh, Mumbai or somewhere where there's no traffic signs there's no traffic regulations there's uh, uh, cows there's like uh, you know donkey carriages there's like pedestrians there's bicycles there's rickshaw pullers and pushers there's mopeds they can't handle that right 
because th there is no rules and it's like basically kind of free for all but humanity can do that stuff right so so the the, the fact that the machines are very good at a, in a closed system like chess or go you know with very specific hard rules those rules don't change the world around us changes and fluctuates all all the time there's constant new variables there's new input there's new <laughs> output there's no two situations which are completely identical you know there's always a little bit of a difference but as i said you change one pixel up the machine can't play go uh can't play pong anymore so 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 that's where we are struggling with right now to take that knowledge and that capacity from a closed system and bring it within an open system and finally there's a lot of talk about consciousness and how uh, you know that can and there's a big debate whether it's actually required or not and all that stuff but the reality is if we presume that consciousness is necessary for high degree of general intelligence simply due to uh, the fact that, you know, uh, we are the highest uh, examples supposedly of artificial, gener of general intelligence, I shouldn't say artificial, but general intelligence, and we possess consciousness supposedly, <laughs> right? So the presumption then is, well, if machines are supposed to, uh, you know, exhibit high degree of generalized intelligence, then perhaps they should also be conscious just like we are. Well, but the reality is that we've made zero progress on consciousness. Because first, we don't understand it in humans. We don't know how it arises. We don't know how to uh, recreate it, therefore. And we don't, we have no idea how to even prove that it exists, how to measure it. And so while you can argue that narrow intelligence in machines has measurably grown in time, let's say in the last 50 years, today we can do stuff we never thought or, or were able to do 50 years ago. That's grown up exponentially almost, but consciousness within machines has not changed. They're all completely lacking consciousness. So Watson can beat uh, us in Jeopardy and Deep Blue can beat us in chess and AlphaGo can be beat us in, in Go, but they're not conscious of their victory. They're not happy about it. They cannot celebrate about it and they're unaware of what it actually means to beat Gary Kasparov in chess, like how incredible that is, right? They, they just completely lack that kind of meta-analysis of, of thinking about thinking or of what they just accomplished. So, you know, that's, that's kind of like some of the big, the big issues that, that, that need to be overcome. So many things you're saying that deserves separate recordings. I think the, the philosophy behind this is um, is more important than the technology. Uh, I think we often speak about this as, as technology, but how it's impacting us as humans, uh, the ethics, and all those things are are amazing. Um, Nicola, how did you get involved in this field, and also what led you up to writing the book? So let me start backwards. So the book basically was written to fulfill the request of my uh, podcast audience. You know, I started the first podcast in the world on the topics related to artificial intelligence and transhumanism and ethics back in 2009. And, uh, you know, basically after four or five years, my audience started to ask me to write a book 
uh, with the best interviews from my podcast. And at the time, I maybe probably had 100, 150 or something like that. Now they're over 250, uh, and some of them spanning over three hours. But, you know, and I said, no, I, I want to do more interviews rather than focus on the, the past ones because I've always thought, like, kind of that's kind of like a waste of time. Uh, I, I'd rather produce new content and new stuff, talk to new people rather than go and regurgitate the old ones. But, you know, you can say no only so many times. And after people were pushing me for, let's say, about, I think I held up for about three years. And then at some point, you know, you, you can't keep saying no. You, you just have to, to do what, what people are begging you to do. And then I also realized that there's actually a benefit to doing that because it forced me to kind of... Uh, uh, stop a little bit, go back, reassess at where I am, reassess at how I've gotten to be where I was at that point, uh, kind of re-watch my interviews, watch my personal development in the process, that, uh, both in terms of skill and ability to interview people, but also in terms of how my personal thoughts have evolved on the subject over time. Mm-hmm. And then kind of be forced to kind of uh, choose the best 20 and edit them and polish them in a written form which made sense and, and were accessible and easily digestible by anyone mm-hmm. on a diversity of topics and how they can actually add up to a coherent whole and what kind of message I can send out that that's beneficial for people I believe w- while doing all of this. Uh, and so that's how the book was born. Okay. Uh, and it, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. What, um, and I think in the introduction you refer to the fact that, if I remember correctly, you worked um, in military drones, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, well, well, so so uh, the, the way I came into doing all of this was the following way. So I was actually, uh, so I did an undergraduate degree in what's called PPE. Uh, philosophy, political science, and economics. Uh, you know, my, my uh, interests have always been uh, primarily in ethics, but uh, I thought, well, the, at least in theory, the best field to actually apply ethics, at least in theory, would be politics. Now, whether that's actually the case is a whole other conversation, but it's supposed to be politics. Then you can't actually do politics, however, unless you're educated about economics, because the economic foundation is tremendously important uh, within politics. Mm. So then I decided to do an undergraduate in, in all three, political science, philosophy, and economics. And then uh, uh, I took a course towards uh, the end of my undergraduate degree on uh, just war theory. Uh, uh, and mm. and, and uh, that course totally blew my mind because uh, it was all about ethics in a time of war and that's kind of like an oxymoron or a paradoxical situation you know Mm -hmm. you're supposed to be war is like one of the most extreme activities that humanity ever does and yet even within war I believe uh, there's certain norms and things that should be uh, you know obliged and abided by and there's certain rules and regulations and even international legislation about it um and uh so uh after that i i i went on to do a master's degree uh in political uh science with focus on armed conflict and again ethics and when i was writing my thesis for my master's degree uh, i was looking for a new topic 
to write my thesis on, you know, not like World War I or World War II where there's like a million things written on them. Uh, and that was about 2004, 2005. And at the time I read, uh, I was very kind of lucky to read two books one after the other. And I can't remember if I read first Ray Kurzweil's The Singularity is Near and then Charlie Stross's uh, uh, Accelerando or if it was the other way around, first Accelerando, then uh, Ray Kurzweil. I think I read Ray Kurzweil's book first, if I remember, and then I, I read Charlie Stross's. And they're basically the same thing, only Ray's book is the non-fiction version and then Charlie Stross's Accelerando <laughs> is like the science fiction version of, of that same process. It's, it, they're talking about the same thing, basically. And those two books totally blew my mind. And so uh, I thought, well, this is a perfect topic for me to, uh, to write my thesis on. How about uh, I, I write something called Critical Security at the Intersection Between Machine and Human Intelligence. So I called it Hacking Destiny, Critical Security at the Intersection of Machine and Human Intelligence, because that's what the singularity is all about. It's about the, the cross point when machine and human intelligence interact, interact. And then from a security point of view, what could happen? That's what that was the question I asked myself at the time, which to be honest, right now, I don't even think it's a very good question anymore. But at the time, with my knowledge at the time, I thought that's a good question. And at the time, I actually got a lot of pushback because uh, I couldn't find supervisors to approve even my topic because they thought it was like way out there, unrealistic, kind of like um, movie bullshit, uh, sort of like uh, imaginary. Wait, wait. Some people told me basically it's a waste of time, according to them, and and they refused to supervise me. Right? They're like, oh, this is not even science. This is not even political science. This is kind of maybe in like the literature, science fiction realm. I was like telling them, people, it's coming. Anyway, so finally I found the supervisor. I did it, and then right after I did that. Uh, um, I graduated at the peak of the recession, I think it was 2008, and I was unable to find a job. Uh, I sent out, I stopped counting after sending about 300 resumes, and you know, I had all kinds of scholarships, academic accomplishments, this and that, and I couldn't find a job. Mm. And the funny part was that one of my um, uh, resumes and cover letters was sent to what at the time was the first blog on the topic, which was called Singularity Hub. And it was the, the first blog on the topic of the technological singularity and artificial intelligence. And I thought, I'm perfect for these guys. You know, I just did my master's on this topic. People say I'm a good writer. I am already have a background in the field. Like they should be happy to have me, right? The reality was it took a week or maybe two weeks before I started realizing these guys are not calling me back either because despite the fact that they had a, a, an open call for staff writers, for whatever reason, they just didn't call me. And then it took maybe another week for that crazy idea to show up somewhere in the background of my mind that, you know what, maybe I can do this on my own. You know what, maybe... I don't need them. You know what? Maybe I can start a blog on my own. How hard could it be? And you know, at the time I was very scared and uh, because I, I had no background in uh, computer science, web design, blogging. I knew nothing about the technical end of those things, right? Mm -hmm. And so 
I started educating myself at the time on HTML because that was what people were using mostly in 2008. Uh, and uh, I, it took me like three months to have my homepage up uh, with HTML and it was so kind of clunky and terrible in, in 18 different ways. Uh, and then it took another three months to have maybe about 80 or 90 pages uh, up uh, on a website called singularitysymposium.com. And that website is still up there um, and I haven't touched it since then for 11 years, mm -hmm. but it's still up and running. Uh, and then six months later, I heard of this incredible thing called WordPress. Which basically means that if you can type in a word processor, you can make a website. It's that easy, right? You don't need to note any code. All you need to do is just type, put a picture if you want, done. And I was like, oh my God, this is incredible, right? So then I switched to WordPress and I launched my blog, which is called singularityweblog.com. And then another six months later, I discovered this incredible thing called podcasting. And, you know, I was very scared, again, because I had no idea about audio technology, microphones, reverberations, recording software, gear. Um, my voice, I don't think, was is very, you know, radio-worthy in any way. Uh, I have an accent. Uh, you know, I have personal insecurities and fears. So I thought, oh, who in the world would ever waste their time listening to my podcast and all that stuff? And mind you, after six months, my blog was getting maybe, I don't know, a couple of hundred hits a month if I'm lucky. So that's like three per day. And maybe one was me and another one was my wife or something like that, you know? Uh, and so after six months, uh, I, I started, uh, actually decided, well, what do I have to lose? Why don't I just give it a try? And, and you know, uh, I was kind of hiding a little bit by using a, an alias called Socrates. So the first maybe six to nine months, I wasn't really revealing my, it's not that my name was really hidden, but it wasn't like up front there. So I was like Socrates. And I still am Socrates, but now old people know that that, that's me. And I started blogging uh, and uh, I mean, I started podcasting and then while doing podcasting, uh, I started recording the video of my podcasts. And so then I launched the YouTube channel and, you know, one thing led to another. And here we are talking to you today. I have, a, uh, you know, six, seven million downloads. I have 25,000 subscribers on my YouTube channel. I've been all over the world. Uh, because people now know me as the Singularity guy or Socrates. Uh, I've been to NASA, to Singularity University, to Facebook, to Tesla, to Google, uh, to many of those organizations. Uh, I've talked to 250 of the best people around the world. As I said, I had just one example, the last interview probably with Dr. Marvin Minsky before he passed away. Uh, my book became a you know, Amazon bestseller in three hours because I have captive audience on my podcast that has been begging me to write a book on the topic for years. And then finally, when I when I did it in three hours, it became an Amazon bestseller in like three categories, right? And so here we are. Your, your podcast, if I remember correctly, is on singularity.fm. 
Right. So my podcast is very easy to find. It's uh, uh, on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, uh, uh, Google Player, um, or Android, like wherever they have uh, the podcasts. Uh, and it's uh, or if you just want to type singularity.fm in the uh, address of your browser, you're going to get right there. Yes. Okay. And how often do you re release podcasts? You know, I. So one of the reasons maybe that, that, that my podcast is not more popular than it is, uh, is that my, I've never, I've always been about keeping my personal freedom. Uh, and, and so I, I don't talk much about my personal life. I don't like blog about, you know, my breakfast or uh, share videos about uh, stuff like that. Uh, mm -hmm. Like many people who are quote influencers do. Um, and, uh, so my, my podcast schedule has not been too regular. Generally I tried right now, I try to do maybe two podcasts a month. Sometimes I do three. There has been periods in, of time in the past where I used to do even four or five per month. Uh, and I almost got burned out because you see, I don't just do podcasts. I prepare for a ridiculous amount of time before each and every interview of mine. So just to give you one example, and, and that preparation can span at least two or three days of full-time work to prepare for an interview to sometimes weeks and weeks and weeks of working, you know, eight, nine, ten hours a day to get ready for an interview. Because if I'm talking to Michio Kaku about the future of the human mind, and he's like one of the founders of a string field theory, uh, or if I'm talking to Noam Chomsky, or uh, an astronaut, or Bill Nye the science guy, or Lawrence Krauss about the beginning, the Big Bang, and the beginning of the universe, uh, and all these famous people who have done tremendous work in, you know, let's say genetics, robotics, nanotech, synthetic biology, 3D printing, I have to be educated enough to be able to ask them some good questions. And that means that I have to educate first myself with them in personal, what their work is, then I have to educate about uh, their criticisms and their critics about what the big problems are in their field, what the big challenges are, and all those things. I have to be able to hold a fairly detailed and substantial conversation at a sophisticated level near an expert. So in my last interview I did with Ada Palmer, I read 2,000 pages of her books. So her three books, which are massive biblical size book, 2000 pages to do that interview, you know, and we had a three hour and seven minute interview. So my interviews span multiple hours uh, and I prepare for them for weeks sometimes, but people uh, often do watch or listen to them multiple times uh, because you do get to hear different things. And, and it's like a process of discovering and rediscovering and catching different themes every time you mm -hmm. listen to them. So I believe, or at least I hope, uh, and I aim to create a kind of a uh, evergreen content which which illuminates and enlightens you and maybe even makes you better in, in a number of different ways that you can mm. watch and over and over again, uh, mm. both as a personal challenge but also as a personal motivation to, to help you learn and be better and understand things better. And that requires a lot of, you know, uh, some people batch seven or eight, 20 or 30 minute interviews. This is not my style. I want to go as much in depth and I want to give my audience as much as I can. Fantastic. Nicola, before we end up, are there any other books 
that you have published or that you are planning on publishing? Well, uh, so the next book that I've been working on, but I'm not sure if I'm quite ready for it. Um, and um, it's kind of been on and off and, and I'm collecting a ton of material for it. Uh, is is uh, and, and I even have like a number of uh, proposed uh, chapters on my blog. Is called rewriting the human story: how our story determines our future. Uh, and it's been mm. greatly influenced by the work of people such as Yuval Noah Harari, Joseph Campbell, um, and a number of others. Uh, mm. Because narrative, uh, we are wired for narratives. We are wired for stories. Storytelling has been around for thousands of years. Busy with it now. Yeah. Right. Brilliant book. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think I, I've read all of Yuval's books uh, multiple times. I've watched his lectures. I've watched probably 80 or 90% of his interviews online, mm. uh, but, but also a number of others. Uh, and so the, nar the way we see the world is through a story, through a narrative. And, and so that story, it's not the evidence that makes us do certain things. It's how the evidence is taken to fit within a story that then allows us to either accept or deny that evidence. Like, and you can see that now around the world, whether it's with respect to global warming, whether it's with respect to the COVID-19 pandemic. People look at the same evidence and they either embrace or deny it w with respect to the fact that it, it supports or it doesn't support the story that they've embraced already. And so you're not going to change uh, uh, your actions unless you change your story. And therefore it is the story that determines the actions that we're going to take or fail to take and thereby will determine our future. That's my argument. And so the question is, how do you get people to change their story, however, right? Uh, because clearly the stories of the past that we've had are now failing. Uh, they're, they're failing to unite us and they're failing to provide the, the, the common framework within which we as a civilization can kind of first make sense of the world around us and secondly come up with a new story that would allow us to successfully address the global challenges that humanity as a civilization is facing today. Right, so we need a new story for that, because the 20th century was perhaps uh, best qualified as a clash of the story of capitalism and communism. But now, in the early 21st century, we see that the capitalist story is also falling apart. Right, and so the question is then, what's the new story? And the problem why we have like so much chaos and anarchy and so much problems is because there's a diversity of contradictory, mutually exclusive stories that are totally incompatible that have led to this current polarization. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and they force us to fail to address our biggest challenges. And so the, the question is, how do we come up with a story that allows us to all make sense of the world and be productive in solving those grand challenges. And you know, that's a monumental, perhaps a very arrogant task that I've given myself. Uh, and right now I, I'm working on it, but I'm not sure I'm ready to come up with it yet. It's a very needed and very relevant topic, especially given everything we've spoken about today, because this technology is rewriting 
our stories, how we understand it. So, Nicola, listen, it was a singular pleasure to speak with you. I would definitely want to unpack some of the topics in another call in, in a few weeks, if, if you have the time. Um, I really loved reading your book, and it, it introduced me to thinkers that I never knew about before, and obviously then read some of their books. So I'm going to uh, post the, the the URLs of your, your podcast, your, your web blog, and, and also of the book on Amazon um, in the, the YouTube video. It's It's been a privilege. Good luck with that massive task you've set for yourself, and I really look forward to speak to you again. 